You're listening to the Happy as a Mother podcast. Today, I am so excited, so, so excited to welcome Dr. Melissa Shepard to the show. Dr. Melissa is a psychiatrist and psychotherapist, and she has a large platform. She broke 1 million followers on TikTok and has an Instagram page where she offers up all kinds of insights related to ADHD and women, depression, anxiety, understanding their various interventions and treatment strategies, such a wealth of knowledge. And today she is here to chat with us about ADHD in women and in our adjustment to motherhood. In this interview, we unpack the symptoms of ADHD and how it presents differently in women than in men or boys. We discuss things like hyperfixation, time blindness, object permanence, really key concepts to understand for those who might struggle with ADHD. And then, of course, we talk about interventions and coping strategies. If you find that you are struggling with ADHD and want to know where to look further for help and support. This interview is probably the one that has touched most closely to home for me as I am discovering in my 33rd, 34th year of life that I have gone undiagnosed with ADHD my whole life. And it's just being brought to my attention now that I'm realizing one of my boys has ADHD. And I'm learning that this is very common for women that can fly under the radar, not get the supports and interventions that they need growing up because our symptoms can present so differently. This is a really interesting interview. I can't wait for you to hear my chat with Dr. Melissa. Hey mamas, have you heard the exciting news? We are rolling out a wellness clinic across the country. That's right, Canada's first maternal mental health nationwide clinic. So far we are offering services in Ontario. We've recently added Alberta and Saskatchewan. And while you're listening to this, we may be rolling out additional provinces in your location. To learn more and find a maternal mental health specialist that can serve you in your adjustment to motherhood, head to happyasamother.co slash wellness. That's happyasamother.co slash wellness. Welcome to the Happy as a Mother podcast, where we are dedicated to helping you cope with the load of motherhood. I'm your host and registered psychotherapist, Erica Jossa. Let's work together in letting go of shame and guilt, accepting where we are in our journey, and moving towards becoming the women we want to be. We will hear from experts, learn practical tips, and listen in on honest conversations. Please note that the information shared in this podcast is for educational purposes only and should not replace the advice of your healthcare provider. Okay, let's dive in. 
Dr. Melissa, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. We booked this like before summer vacations (laughs) and it's been on the calendar for a little while and I've just been so excited for so many reasons, which we'll dive into, but thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. I am so curious how you came to specialize in psychiatry and therapy, but then also like how one stumbles their way into TikTok in that profession because I love to hear how this came about. Oh, you and me both. I <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know. Um, yeah, stumbled is actually a great word for most of my life choices. Um, I think like, so I decided to go to medical school after a tumultuous high school experience. I did not do well in high school and ultimately decided you know, I was going to try and get my, you know what, together after my grandpa got sick with Alzheimer's. Mm. And so I ended up doing a lot better in college, learning some of the coping strategies that we'll probably touch on later and getting some more help, doing well there and going to med school. And I never would have thought that I would have done psychiatry because I had had some experiences with psychiatrists and therapists before that I wasn't thrilled with. Like I felt it just, everything felt so cold and like, I don't know. I didn't love it. So like formal in a way sometimes yeah. hey? or like, yeah, very yeah. formal. Yeah. That's a good word for it. And so I got to my psychiatry rotation and like seeing the patients and everything that they were going through and how much of a difference you can make if you get the right mental health treatment And then like kind of remembering my experiences and being like, wow, maybe I can actually make a bit of a difference with this. So that's how I kind of ended up in psychiatry. I know you had mentioned the psychiatry and therapy part, and a lot of psychiatrists don't do therapy. It's rare. Yeah. But I just, that's, I think, completely selfish. I just really like doing it. (laughs) And and I would feel like a piece was missing if I wasn't able to. It's, Yeah. I just like it. I think it rounds out an interesting perspective, right? Because you've got this like more prescribing side and that's a tool in our toolkit. But then when you add the therapy side to things, then you are also trained in all these other tools. So it just really rounds out this whole perspective, which I think is really unique to have. Yeah. And it's nice because then, you know, yeah, there are some patients that I just see for medication management, but we talk about the issues that are going on. And I think being able to have that perspective really helps. Yeah. And then enter TikTok and <laughs> yeah, like TikTok. <laughs> I like how I just wasn't going to answer that. <laughs> I'm like, wait, yes, med school. Yes, this track makes sense. Yes, therapy. Yeah. And then TikTok. And then. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I guess, well, I had started posting on Instagram because I really like the like education piece and like destigmatizing that sort of thing. So that, I mean, that was fine. I was having fun doing that. And then my sisters who were younger and much cooler than me were like, oh, you should put something on TikTok. And I was like, okay. So I did this really like cringy first video, but I think people just saw that I was a mental health professional and started following. And I was, before I knew it, I had like 40,000 followers, like overnight. I was like, what? Like, what is this? Wow. <laughs> Why is this happening? Amazing. And it was just because the need for mental health help and knowledge and education and stuff is so great that mm-hmm. I kind of happened into that space right as COVID was starting and, you know, all of that stuff. And so I think that played 
a pretty big role in Mm -hmm. that platform taking off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you recently broke a million followers on TikTok, which is bananas to think about, I'm sure. My brain doesn't understand. I know. (laughs) Just like, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I really love about like mental health professionals and all kinds of other professionals using mediums like Instagram or TikTok is we're taking therapy out of the therapy room. We're taking like this information that was so closed behind doors, you know, that was inaccessible to so many and making it really digestible, really accessible. And then at the same time, and I really appreciate you for this, is also showing our humanity in that, Yeah. right? Like I think that in our training, and you tell me if this is the same for you, but it's like we mm-hmm. have to be this like blank slate of like, you know, not bring any of ourself yeah. to like our clients or this like platform when we're putting ourselves out there as a professional. And I just feel like that is such an outdated mm-hmm. sort of way of viewing it now. Very like psychodynamic. You lay on the couch. I'm going to be back here. I'm not going to say anything <laughs> like cold's kind of – And yeah, I mean, you're right. That's exactly what kind of turned me off to like my own mental health care because I felt like, and I know this isn't what it is. I know it's just sort of, you know, people trying to practice in the best way possible. And that's sort of what their understanding of mental health care is. But the kind of coldness, the formality just felt like not caring. And I do all of this because I really, truly do care about people and I care about my patients. I care about like, like everyone, like, I I don't know, I'm an empath, like, this is something that makes me happy. And having people feel better makes me really happy. And so I think showing that human side, maybe, hopefully helps people understand that there are a lot of us professionals out there who really genuinely do care and want to help you feel better. And so I, I hope that what that does you know, when I post a stupid video of, I don't know, like the other day you post the trend, one of the trends where you like are a cartoon or something and it's stupid. It's fun. It's just very lighthearted. <laughs> and what I hope it does is help people understand that we are also humans and that it's not so scary to get help, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I talk about my lived experience with postpartum depression and anxiety a lot on Mm -hmm. this podcast. And that's what birthed my entire platform was like, how have I been 10 years in the mental health field and didn't know maternal mental health was a specialty? Like that's a problem, right? Right. You know? And I think that we're going to get into that today with our topic, some of our lived experiences, because we're here to talk about ADHD today and how it presents in women specifically and how that looks different than men. And your videos have come across my For You page. I am so down the rabbit hole of ADHD <laughs> TikTok. And it has already like diagnosed me because it knows. <laughs> it knows. I didn't even know, but TikTok knew. <laughs> and it's interesting because I'm going through this process of potentially having one of my sons assessed and diagnosed because mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm pretty certain he's ADHD. And I worked in a child and family practice where, you know, we did a lot of therapy with often young boys with ADHD. Yep. And so I'm pretty keen to see those things and and pick them up in him. But through this process, I've been uncovering that I think that I actually have ADHD, but it looks nothing like how his does, right? Yeah, your story is so common too, like especially for women because we tend to have a delay in our diagnosis. There's this referral bias. So healthcare professionals are used to thinking about ADHD as, you know, a hyperactive young boy. Mm -hmm. And so women are less likely to be referred. We tend to 
kind of be socialized to hide our symptoms a little bit better. So, so many women go much of their lives just figuring out ways to piece together how to cope with these symptoms, figuring out how to do things the best they can, but never really feeling like they've met their full potential. Mm. And then one day their kid goes in for a diagnosis and they're like, oh, am I allowed to cuss on this podcast? Sure. Oh, go shit. for it. Okay. There you go. Done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, Love it. <laughs> but yeah, they're like, oh my God, like this is me. And I didn't realize that it was. But ADHD is highly heritable. If you, you know, have a couple kids with ADHD, you gotta really look hard at parents that are undiagnosed because it is so highly heritable. Yeah. So can we unpack for those who are not, you know, in the field at all and who don't really know what ADHD is? And I'd love for us to sort of tease apart how it sort of maybe stereotypically presents in boys and how we miss women because it feels like it's so much more subtle or maybe internalized for women. Yes. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Yeah. So ADHD, you know, we kind of think of two subtypes, technically three, because you have a combined subtype where they're both, both of the other subtypes kind of fit together. Anyways, there's this inattention subtype and then there's hyperactivity subtype. And The combination would be both inattentive and hyperactive symptoms. So, you know, we don't directly say there's like impulsivity, but there is impulsivity. It's impulsivity, inattention, hyperactivity is kind of the pillars of ADHD. And so the reason I bring up those subtypes at all is because women tend to fall more in the inattentive subtype than in the hyperactive subtype. Hmm. And that's relevant because women who are inattentive or girls, and, and I'm using the terms women and girls throughout this because most of the research that I know of has been in people who self-identify. And so these are people saying, I'm a woman, I'm a girl, and these are my symptoms. Unfortunately, we don't know a lot about transgender individuals and how what your gender presentation is might affect your ADHD symptoms. But I think there is more research coming on that. But Mm -hmm. as a tangent. Yeah, no, it's important. There'll be a lot of that if you and I both have ADHD. (laughs) (laughs) I've met myself in you in some way. I love it. I I love it. But girls with an inattentive type of ADHD in school are not the problem children, right? They're not the kids who are running around bouncing off the walls, who teachers are like, this is exhausting. We need to get this kid in to have them evaluated and that sort of thing. So it kind of flies under the radar. And I think girls tend to be judged more harshly for the same symptoms that boys have because it's more socially acceptable to be a hyperactive boy. But, you know, a hyperactive girl may not be looked upon as nicely. So Mm -hmm. I think that's a big part of the difference is just the likelihood of having the inattentive subtype being much higher in people who identify as women and girls. And maybe as a result, getting into less trouble, you also have this referral bias of, you know, practitioners and teachers having this idea of a hyperactive boy as being ADHD. And so we miss them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a big part of the reason why so many women now, like I'm sure you've noticed through TikTok, through everything, like there's this big like burst of understanding of what does it look like to be a professional woman with OCD. (laughs) That's a whole nother episode Yeah, (laughs) Um, (laughs) with ADHD and it looks different. And so we miss people. Yeah. 
Well, and I think that you touched on an important point with boys who maybe tend to be, and and I'm sure some girls can present in this way as well, but Mm -hmm. more behavioral and it comes across as more of like a disruption or disturbance to the classroom or the family life. So therefore there is like a a real strong motivation to figure out and diagnose and and intervene, right? Yeah. Totally. That's the case with my son. Like it causes like a disruption in some way and we need to problem solve it and for his sake and everybody else's sake, right? (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) And then I think about myself and I think about this Mm -hmm. inattention as I'm uncovering this information and I'm looking back on like grade school, for example. I didn't learn anything in school like young when I was younger because I was too busy socializing and so preoccupied like daydreaming and doing everything else that my brain could like invent to do other than actually learning. Yeah. And you've got some really amazing videos and and I do some posts like this with postpartum anxiety as well where rather than taking the textbook symptoms that feel kind of like they don't fit for me, right? Like, no, that's They're not hard me. to understand. Yeah. Like how does, what does that actually look like? We go through and talk about what is the actual lived experience of that. And exactly. you had gone through one and I was like, okay, this is me. You were talking about like more speeding tickets than the normal person, listening to the same song on repeat often. And there was just like Mm -hmm. all of these different pieces that practically or like tangibly show up that are differences. Can we talk about those? Yeah, totally. So you're bringing up the great point. Like normally we would have said – okay, you're going to be more impulsive and you're going to hyperfixate on things. And those are signs of ADHD. And yes, that's true. But what does that mean for like our day-to-day lives? Well, the impulsivity comes into play when you are frustrated, trying to get somewhere, you can't hold back your lead foot and you get some speeding tickets, right? And then the hyperfixation, you get really into a certain song. You've listened to it over and over again. Same with foods for people with ADHD, So kind of breaking it down to like the practical of what does this actually look like day to day? Yeah. And I think the other really important thing to remember is like there's a lot more of this information coming out, which is great. But we also have to remember that people with ADHD are sort of like any mental health problem. These symptoms can occur in people who do not have ADHD. It's just the extent and the severity to which they occur. Yeah. So, you know, in your example... That's why we say having more speeding tickets than the average person. Many people are going to get speeding tickets. It doesn't mean they all have ADHD, but someone who's very impulsive may get more. Mm -hmm. So, you know, some other things that I see quite often are (laughs) the classic, like putting your phone down and it just disappears Mm. and that happening several times a day, several times a week, feeling like you are never able to get organized always, always, no matter how hard you try, me showing up to this podcast, I was like, I'm going to be 10 minutes early. This is going to be great. (laughs) No, never, never. You're always going to be like two minutes late. I am like that. And it drives my husband bananas. Like he's getting anxiety for me. Yes. (laughs) And I'm already like, seriously, it's so funny. Yeah, I'm like in my phone or in a flow of something. Mm -hmm. And I'm just like, I'll get there. It's okay. Like I'll make it. He's like, you have five minutes. You should get moving. Yeah. This is not how this works. Yeah. And there's, so there's something I'm sure, you know, called time blindness that a lot of people with ADHD have. And it's one of those things that it's being studied more and more, but it's not necessarily like a diagnosis criteria, but it's helpful to understand when you know you have ADHD, that this is something you deal with. So just, we tend to have a really difficult time telling how long a certain task is going to take us 
even tasks that we do all the time. So like I might get in the shower 10 minutes before I have to do something. I know it's going to take longer than that if I think about it logically, but it just doesn't click for some reason. So, you know, that being part of the reason why we struggle with being late constantly, or on the flip side, some of us that get very anxious, maybe excessively early to kind of prevent that. Mm. But yeah, the time management thing is huge. And I think the other big thing with, and one of the reasons I'm so glad that we're talking about this stuff is moms, professional women, other adults as well. Like when you go undiagnosed with ADHD for a very long time, you start to really internalize the things that you don't like about yourself. Like Mm -hmm. you start to blame yourself for the symptoms. You start to feel like, wow, well, I, you know, I'm never on time. I'm just an asshole. Like I'm just Mm. not considerate of other people's time. That must be what it is. You start to think you're lazy because you procrastinate on things or because mm-hmm. you can't get up the motivation to you know, start a task that maybe is going to require a lot of thought. So you, know, you really start to internalize and feel like I'm not a good mom. I'm not a good person. If I was only trying harder, you know, I could get through some of this stuff. I did poorly in school because I'm not smart, that sort of thing. And it's really not fair to say that stuff about yourself. It's not true. Your brain is wired differently, but that doesn't make you a failure or lazy or Mm -hmm. any of those things. Well, that brings to mind the term neurodivergent, right? And I've been seeing Mm -hmm. that also a lot on TikTok and elsewhere. And I think that's what you're speaking to is when we can understand that our brain functions differently. Can we unpack what neurodivergence means for people? Yeah. So it's a term that's been around for a while, um, but I think it is starting to gain a little bit more traction, which is nice because I think it's an important concept for us to kind of understand. But basically someone who is neurodivergent is someone whose brain just sort of works a little bit differently than the average person. Sorry, I realize this is a podcast. So scare quotes, I'm doing scare quotes, (laughs) average person, because like, what is normal anyways, we don't know. So essentially what the world considers typical, anyone who sort of diverges from that, which is where the term comes from, would be considered neurodivergent. So that includes classically, I I believe the term was coined for people with autism spectrum disorders. So that's sort of a classic example. ADHD is another great example. Dyslexia, dyspraxia. There are even, you know, many people, myself included, who feel that different mental illnesses, bipolar disorder, depression, anxiety, kind of fit under this umbrella term of neurodivergent, a neurodivergent individual. And it just means that we're different from the typical brain, the average person. Yeah. And I think it can be a really helpful term to kind of destigmatize maybe some of the things that typically have been very stigmatized. I also think it's important to note that just because we're saying, oh, you know, these conditions are neurodivergent, they're just different, doesn't take away the fact that they can be incredibly disabling and difficult to deal with. So mm-hmm. it's not saying people who are neurodivergent don't need help. They're just different. For some people, that may be the case. For others, though, it can be very disruptive and very difficult. But it's just sort of this umbrella term that says, hey, we in our society, we consider these things, quote unquote, normal. You diverge from that. And mm-hmm. probably more neurodivergent people than there are normal people, given how many things fit under that umbrella now. 
Right. And like many other things like anxiety and depression, ADHD, I think you alluded to, falls on a continuum in terms of its yes. presence of its traits. Like it can fall on a – to a, like a completely debilitating to a more like sort of mild or moderate form. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously someone who is going to get diagnosed much earlier is – you know, I, I've seen – kids who just have such terrible ADHD that they never learn to read because they just can't sit and focus. And you probably run across this in your clinical work as well. Just terrible, terrible symptoms. And all the way up to someone who, like yourself, has professional success, success as a good mom and a good person and gets things done and has what we would consider more mild symptoms Mm -hmm. and has figured out a way to kind of cope with them. So yeah, there's a huge range of symptoms and as a result, like different people requiring different levels of intervention, but, you know, kind of all falling under that same umbrella of a disorder that's characterized by inattention, impulsivity, and hyperactivity or some combination of those. Mm -hmm. When we enter into motherhood, it's like before that, as an individual, we are solely responsible for regulating ourselves, right? And controlling our own belongings and keeping track of our own <laughs> car keys. And, you know, right. so I can imagine as women, as mothers who either are diagnosed and are aware or are not diagnosed, how expanding the responsibility and the mental load can impact ADHD, right? Like, or how ADHD can impact how we make that transition, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, totally. Totally. It's a huge factor, I think. And we see the same thing with, you know, every major life transition. So, you know, people going off to college, starting their first job, becoming a parent, that sort of thing can all be times where we lose some structure, we have more responsibilities. And so the coping mechanisms that we've built up to deal with maybe are what would be considered mild ADHD symptoms start to fall apart. And then at that point, it tends to come to clinical attention. I also think that's a big part of the reason why we are having so many of these conversations now and why so many women are realizing that they have this going on. Mm -hmm. And I think that's because of the incredible demands that are being placed on moms during the pandemic. Mm. As you probably know, the brunt of responsibility for parenting and, you know, things going on at home and schooling, all of that stuff despite moms, you know, working, that responsibility has disproportionately fallen on them. And so we're layering on top of responsibilities. And we're at the same time, we've removed so many coping mechanisms, because with the pandemic, you know, maybe your gym is closed, maybe you just don't have the time to do things that you would normally do. Maybe you don't have the, you know, social circle that you used to. And so the coping skills are falling apart, the structure that you used to have falling apart. At the same time, you've got these added responsibilities of taking care of your kids during a worldwide pandemic and an incredible amount of stress. And that's really hard. And your ADHD symptoms, if they're there, if they're mild, this is their time to shine. Like they, they come out of the woodwork and, you know, it's always difficult to, tease apart, is there an element of anxiety, of depression? Is this all ADHD? Because like I said, we have a lot going on, but Mm -hmm. I think that added stress of momming during a pandemic is definitely a major contributor of like why we're even having these conversations 
now and realizing so many people are realizing like, oh, this, this is me. It's really interesting because when we think about, or even in the conversations I have with a lot of clients, moms on Instagram and just sort of generally speaking, Mm -hmm. it's a lot of, obviously the responsibility does for sure mostly fall on mom's laps. But then I think about the complaints about being the refiller of the home or seeing things that their partner doesn't see, for example, or things like that. And in my situation, the roles are almost reversed because my husband's very neurotypical. And so like if I run out of body wash in the shower, for example, this is like the epitome of an example of this. If I run out of body wash in the shower and I'm like, oh, body wash is empty and I wash my body, I get out. I never think of that again, Mm -hmm. ever. Ever again. until Well, until you get in the shower the next time. And then use my husband's body (laughs) wash because I have to be (laughs) resourceful because I have no body wash. And then again, I step (laughs) out and it's out of my brain again, right? And so, so for me or for any other maybe women or moms who might struggle with ADHD, it was kind of like, Hmm, I don't really fit into this mold or like stereotype that a lot of moms yeah. feel like, you know, that I hear from people because very true. Like I am the worst refiller of the home. Like actually you feel like a disaster. Yeah. Right. Like I'm the worst <laughs> refiller. And like there are strengths that I have that my husband doesn't have. And and in our partnership, I'm very appreciative that we are very good at communicating and we're very good at playing to each other's strengths. So he will be the refiller of the home and he's okay with that. And he sets a reminder and he has a list and he's all like, he's so organized about it. And I will do other things. And I'm like the event planner and I bring the fun (laughs) and I do the adventures. You're probably, yeah, the creative one, the, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. And so we divide out our strengths in that way. But that object permanence, is that the term for it? Like that's that's a real thing for ADHD, right? Yes. Yes. It is a very real thing. That's why you like put something in a safe place so you won't forget where you put it and then it's like immediately gone. And you're like, seriously? Um, yeah, if, if, if you can't see it, it's it's out of your awareness completely. And I mean, this is sort of another tangent, but this is part of the reason why people with ADHD tend to struggle with weight and with, you know, eating habits or other healthy habits more than other people do. Because if we don't see that there are carrots in the fridge, we're not eating, like we're going for the thing that we can see. And so part of what we do to help people build healthier habits is just addressing things like the object permanence, making things really obvious so that they are in your line of sight so that you don't lose out on them. But yeah, totally, totally a thing. And I think Instagram, I'm glad that there are <laughs> that there are accounts like yours Because the risk with some of the beautiful, perfect mom Instagram pages is that, yeah, they definitely feel pretty alienating Mm. before you realize like, oh, ADHD is part of what is going on. You beat yourself up for not color coordinating your kids' lunches and making it to soccer practice three hours ahead of time so you can bring the orange slices or whatever it might be. Right, Um, right. I'm being dramatic, but it feels bad. Like you feel like you're not doing a good job as a mom because you're not living up to the standard of, like you said, that stereotypical role of what a mom should be like. Yeah. And it's interesting because of my partnership, it's actually brought 
certain freedoms. Like it's caused us to have to be very open and communicate about how we share the load, Mm -hmm. which has actually been a really beneficial thing for us because especially because my husband is not commuting for COVID. He's around more. He was gone 12 hours a day. It was all on me and that was a whole shit show and hopefully we never go back to that, right? (laughs) Right. But now that he's around more and having this understanding of myself and what my strengths are and what his strengths are, has actually given me permission in a way to distribute the load to him and feel like it's not because I'm failing. It's not because I can't do it. And we've found this sort of stride. And I think that when we can better understand ourselves and our brains and our strengths and our partner's strengths, it allows for us to shift the weight of the responsibility a bit if we can find some communication there and absolutely work it through a little bit. Yeah. And you're hitting on something that I think is so important that I try to counsel my patients and myself with ADHD about is just getting intentional about things when you have ADHD can be a massive help, you know, especially if your symptoms are like I said, relatively mild, like where, you know, you're still functioning in many areas of your life, but things are difficult and things are not going as well as they could. Otherwise getting intentional, like you and your husband did with communicating directly, like where the responsibility is going to fall, that can be tremendously helpful and coming up with these habits and routines that can kind of help keep things moving can be so helpful for someone with ADHD. It's helpful for everybody, but even more so when you have ADHD, building that scaffolding like that can be so, so, so Mm. helpful. Yeah. Like I would start a load of laundry and then it would live in the washer (laughs) for four days until I remembered that it was in the washer. You're like, oh. (laughs) Right? I'm like, oh, that really needs to go in the dryer. Meanwhile, my husband has like a timer. He has a whole system. I'm like, okay. You can be like the yeah. The you do the laundry, laundry like, and then I'll I'll do the folding. Like that doesn't need to like be mm-hmm. you know so keenly watched. So yes. that works for yes. us. And just playing to those strengths, exactly. It's so funny. Oh my gosh, it's like I'm understanding myself finally at like what 34. It just took a few years, know, right? you know, yeah. to to get there. So I really want to hone in and concisely go through some of these symptoms so that people can really kind of get a bit of a checklist or whatever. So when we're sitting down with a client, a woman who maybe is suspecting she might have ADHD, what are some of those things that we're going to kind of go through in our list, our checklist? Yeah. So kind of like I said, we're going to hit on those different symptom domains, those three different domains. So we're going to be looking at inattention, impulsivity and hyperactivity. And in order to do that, I mean, there are a couple of really great scales available that you can use to kind of look over what are my symptoms and give you a little bit more of a practical kind of look at what your ADHD might look like. I tend to look at a bunch of different symptoms kind of all taken together. So one that I'm thinking of, we ask people generally to look back in time and see are these symptoms that have been present for a long time versus are these symptoms relatively new? And in part, that's because we want to make sure that we're not misdiagnosing something like a depression or an anxiety disorder that maybe would be a little bit more episodic than something like ADHD, which we say, you know, is a neurodevelopmental disorder. So it's there since birth. Mm. The way that it manifests throughout your life is going to be different, but there's going to be some hints of it back in the past. So we're asking about that sort of lifelong experience, but also because it's difficult to think back that far 
asking about what are some experiences that you have had more recently. So some common questions that I will ask my patients are, you know, whether they tend to be daydreamy, whether they have trouble focusing, kind of keeping their attention on things. Maybe they have difficulty paying attention to what somebody is saying, even if they're directly speaking to them. So people will describe instantly forgetting someone's name after they're told it, mm-hmm. commonly, you know, zoning out of conversations and having to have like your stock answers available for when you realize you're not actually paying attention, but need to respond. Mm. I'll ask people about whether they tend to feel restless or have difficulty sitting still. So, you know, that hyperactive little boy that we classically think of for ADHD, that hyperactivity doesn't necessarily go away, but it does become more internal. So it's more of a feeling of restlessness or shifting in your chair, getting up during meetings, you know, and having to go to the bathroom because you just can't stand it anymore. Is that also related to like picking, biting, nails, fidgeting? Is that yeah, all sort of related? Definitely. We will find very creative ways to entertain ourselves which is why some of the fidgets are great. So like getting yourself one of those little like fidgets with the little poppers. I love those. Mm -hmm. But yeah, totally. So tapping your foot, twirling your hair, picking your nails, bouncing your leg, just shifting a lot in your chair. You know, kids with ADHD, you'll see them in the classroom. They're all like tipped back, like leaning on the back legs of their (laughs) chairs. Um, So we kind of do that Mm -hmm. sometimes too. So yeah, definitely lots of stuff like that, or just avoiding situations where you know you're going to be stuck in a scenario that's going to require prolonged period of focus. So kids with ADHD that have trouble paying attention in classrooms, you know, maybe they end up in college and they're the ones that don't actually go to lecture, but just read the notes afterwards because it's so painful to sit there for that long. Some other questions that I'll ask are the question of whether people find themselves being just a little bit late to everything or excessively early and really not having any in between. That kind of tips us off to maybe there's some time blindness there. They're not able to notice, you know, the passing of time. I ask them how along those same lines, do they have trouble telling how long it's going to take them to complete a task? Hmm. A lot of things that us moms kind of notice are things like feeling really embarrassed about the state of our house, Mm. state of our house, state of our car, state of our workplace. (laughs) So it's common for everybody's place to be a little bit messy. But when you ask parents with ADHD how embarrassed they are about it, they're going to be extremely ashamed in general. Mm. And this kind of hits on two factors. So one, we are more disorganized than the average bear. But We also tend to internalize that and we feel a lot more shame than maybe the average person would over that stuff. Is there also something to do with like being hypersensitive to criticism as a piece of that? Is that a part of, I feel like I've seen these in videos. I'm like recounting all my TikTok videos right now. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So that's something called rejection sensitivity dysphoria. It comes by some other Mm. names as well. But essentially, I I think of ADHD as being a disorder where your nervous system is keyed up. You have a more sensitive nervous system than other people do. So that makes you do the things that we classically think of, like bouncing off the walls or, you know, that sort of thing. But then there's also these other symptoms that go along with ADHD that, again, aren't necessarily in our DSM, the sort of cookbook of mental health issues that is used for many research purposes. 
but they're really important pieces. And sometimes they can be more disruptive than the other pieces of ADHD. So the rejection sensitive dysphoria being one of them. So our nervous systems are highly attuned to criticism, to rejection. And you may be the person who is somebody cancels something on them and they take it very personally. They think, oh, wow, mm. this is because they hate me, not, oh, because their car broke down. Um, you know, it's it becomes very personal. Mm. And the other kind of sensory issue that we don't think about enough in ADHD is just sensory processing sensitivities or sensory processing disorders. So people with ADHD are also more sensitive to external stimulation, which accounts for some of the distraction that we get. But also lights feel brighter. Things feel louder when you're out in like a public space. You're more likely to get very overstimulated and need to take a long break afterwards because it can be exhausting. Your nervous system just isn't able to tune out all that stuff as well as other people's. So it's just hitting you constantly. Hmm. I definitely feel hungrier or hotter than my husband yeah. all the time. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the degree at which I feel those things and then therefore need to complain about them <laughs> is, is like, he's like, really? Like, you know, yeah. but it's true. Like if I'm hot, like the world can't move on because I like just can't focus because I'm overheating or whatever the situation is. Yeah. And people get so frustrated with themselves, especially moms, because you get very overstimulated with your kids running around screaming. It's okay until you reach that point of like, I'm like, I, I'm going to lose my, you know what? Mm -hmm. And then, and then the impulsivity takes over and you maybe yell and you didn't mean right. to yell or you say things that you shouldn't have said. And that's that toxic combination of like, you're just more sensitive than the average person. Plus you don't have that same filter that maybe the average person would have. And moms especially really, really beat themselves up for that. Yeah, absolutely. You've talked about stimulation a couple of times mm -hmm. and yeah. and this like hyperfixation to like crashing burnout. There's something to do with stimulation here that we haven't quite touched on. Can we unpack the not sitting still or the, is it that ADHD people require more stimulation or what is it there? Yeah, it's interesting because it's seemingly like doesn't really make sense because on the one hand, like yes – they do require more stimulation. They get bored easily. But then also, sometimes there's too much stimulation coming in, and then they really can't focus. They get really overwhelmed in like loud or busy environments. So it's almost a disorder of like being able to regulate attention and being able to regulate the stimulation, whether it's external stimulation, internal stimulation, that is going to be coming in and, and kind of affecting you. So attention deficit disorder, most of us agree, is not the best name because it's not necessarily that you have a lack of attention or a lack of ability to get the stimulation that you need to focus. It's more of a difficulty in regulating that. Mm. Many times, those of us with ADHD have an incredible amount of attention to give. It's just like on the squirrel outside in the schoolyard <laughs> and not like on what the teacher is saying, you know? Totally, though. Yeah, <laughs> I totally do know. Too much attention. Yeah, yeah. And I think that it's interesting because what will happen with me, and I don't know if this is like a, a common thing, is I will get down the rabbit hole, like that hyper fixation on mm -hmm. the new thing. And this is actually something I saw in one of your videos and it 
and brought it up, like cycling through creative, like hobbies or hobbies as a kid. Like yeah. my mom used to say, like, you never stick to anything. Like you yeah. always <laughs> hop to the next thing. Cause like I was making jewelry, then I was learning how to knit. As soon as I like grasped the skill and felt like there was like I learned what I needed to learn mm-hmm. and it didn't feel like a challenge anymore, then I was on to learning the new thing. Yeah. And so I like would cycle through those. But in doing that, I would be so down the rabbit hole learning all the things immersed in learning that and then kind of like crash or burn out after. And it was constantly this cycle and it still happens in my creative business today where, you know, when we're going through a new launch or a new thing, but I've actually kind of built my business around that pattern, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's that coping that has made you and many other women with ADHD successful because you figured out like, this is my pattern. These are the things I got to do to cope with it. And you're absolutely right. Like we get so excited, excited enough to like buy everything that like involved with the hobby. Totally. And then then it's time to go. Yeah. And again, that brings into the impulsivity of like people get into trouble with quitting jobs that, Mm. you know, maybe happened impulsively because they're bored or, you know, maybe not thinking through things like that. A lot of people with ADHD get bored and deal with a lot of like wanderlust and just want to get up and move, want to pack their stuff, go on a trip, change jobs, get a new tattoo, dye their hair, you know, especially when things around them are so sort of routine, that can be almost painful. So you're telling me not everybody does that? I'm like, wait, this has just I mean, been my entire life. What are you saying to me right now? That's I know. So like one of the there's this, this common <laughs> comment on my videos, like just describing the classic symptoms of ADHD, and people are like, so my whole personality is actually just ADHD. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, oh, okay. That's really funny. I like took on photography in my mat leave, which I never would have deemed myself a creative person. I I don't know why I sort of like rejected that. I was not like artsy or or creative. Yeah, right, right. Right. And then I took on photography on my third mat leave and started down this whole, like it led me down the IG world and like the podcasting world and all the things I'm doing now, sort of like digital media. Yeah. But like, you know, I got the camera, I got all the supplies. Mm -hmm. It was such a, yeah, like a fixation at the time. Mm -hmm. And I think that I didn't understand understand myself and also my partner didn't understand. And now that we have language to talk about it, we know, you know, like we know that the risk is going down the rabbit hole with this. So like, can we like schedule it in somehow or can we like work (laughs) around what that's going to look like? I'm in the process of launching merch right now and it's a whole rabbit hole that I'm down, but I've been able to work it into my business in a way that I get to do what I love and and fixate and figure out all the pieces and do it. But then it also, you know, is good for my business and my husband understands it and there's communication there and there's less shame about it when we can put this language to it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And find the ways where it does benefit you and not just sort of the ways where it doesn't like we've we've hinted at the creativity thing. But if your mind is going a million miles an hour because you have ADHD, you're going to bounce into some great ideas every so often. And so we tend to come up, we tend to be the entrepreneurs. There's such a high percentage of people with ADHD that are entrepreneurial on social media. I mean, if you just go through the list of like, um, medical professionals on TikTok. We've all talked about our ADHD at some point, mm. and it's because you know we're we're the ones that get these crazy weird ideas for TikToks, and 
are impulsive enough to actually put them out there before <laughs> thinking about how this might look, shaking your ass on TikTok mm. when you're supposed to be a professional. But anyway, <laughs> I digress. That's <laughs> so funny. No, I agree. And, and I, I think that it's so interesting once we understand ourselves. And yes, there are definitely like a weaknesses, I would say, to managing mm-hmm. this. And I would say I'm like very mild to moderate. Like we said, I've right. gone through my life without requiring intervention and have found ways to adapt and cope. So, you know, mm-hmm. that's not to take away from how I'm sure very debilitating it can be for some people, right? Right, right. Um, but yeah, being able to embrace that creativity or the strengths in that or the really unique, interesting pieces that come with it too. Yeah. yeah. Just having some compassion for yourself. Like I think those of us with ADHD, we're criticized so many more times throughout our lifetime than someone who doesn't have ADHD, even just in childhood, you know, for not paying attention, not having your assignment, whatever it is. And we internalize that and we think that we're lazy, we're bad, we're not smart, whatever it is. And so that self-compassion piece can be extremely valuable. You need to start looking for those ways that you are a successful person, that you've dealt with such a difficult thing on your own up until this point in your life. You've figured out these coping skills, you've made it work. And there are some good things to it. And the things that aren't so great, they're things that we can work on and you can get help for and, you know. Yeah. Maybe let's unpack together some of the ways as we're getting close to the end here that we can manage or some of the interventions that are accessible to moms who are listening and just nodding their head and like this really wraps up, you know, my experience. Yeah. What are some places they can start or things that they can do? I think that the first and kind of most important thing is we will tell ourselves that we have to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, that we don't need to get help. We should be able to do it all by ourselves. We should do this or that or the other. And end of the day, it is okay to get professional help. Mm. And I would really encourage people to, you know, I know that that can be difficult as far as time and expense, but kind of think of it as buying back some of your time. If you can get yourself into professional help, whether that's therapy, medication management, there are specialized ADHD coaches, there are executive functioning coaches, that can add so much value to your life and give you so much time back that, like you said earlier, it's a tool in your toolbox. Don't think of it as a sign of weakness. It's something that you can use to improve your life. And I think getting that professional help can be really life-changing. Even if it's just, you know, say you don't want to take medicines or, you know, necessarily engage in therapy regularly, which we should have a different discussion about that. But anyways, Mm -hmm. if you don't want to do that, just going and like getting a diagnosis and understanding yourself a little bit better can be really helpful. Yeah. But there are lots of things that you can do even outside of professional help. So there are some amazing books that have been written on living with ADHD as a woman and, you know, what you can do to help with that. There are lots of organizations that put out a lot of great information and just some of the standard tips that I use for myself and for my patients are number one is exercise. I know like none of us, we don't want to hear it, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) there have been amazing studies that have really shown that 
exercise can actually, in some cases, be just as effective as medication for people with ADHD. Mm. So getting out there and making it a regular habit, you don't have to start by running a marathon tomorrow. But if you can get out and walk for just find like five minutes in the middle of the day to walk or do anything that's going to get your heart rate up, that's going to help you control some of your symptoms. I have some patients who you know, if they can make it to the gym that morning, they don't need to take their stimulant that day because Mm. the the effect can be so significant. Things like that and things like mindfulness meditation, it seems like something that someone with ADHD would never want to do because you're like (laughs) sitting there and being quiet, but it can be incredibly helpful. And the purpose of mindfulness meditation is not to quiet your brain and keep your brain still. It's to notice your thoughts and build that muscle of being able to bring your attention back to the present moment when you drift off. That can be tremendously helpful for ADHD because it gives you some distance from your thoughts. So you don't have to chase every rabbit down every rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really, it's really interesting because I talk about mindfulness and grounding skills and things a lot in the work that I do. Mm -hmm. Um, And even mind wandering and how hard it can be to exercise that muscle, but how important and necessary, especially if we deal with a lot of distressing emotions as well as ADHD, right? It's a muscle that we can learn to build over time. Exactly. And I think about mindfulness or doing like yoga. I used to go to like hot yoga as a young adult and I used to feel so bored. And I'm realizing through our conversation that like a fear of being bored is something that has driven a lot of my actions throughout life, right? Like For sure. And finding ways to cope with that. Like my parents used to take me to like Sunday church and I'd have to sit through like a two or three hour church service and it felt like agony to sit there quietly (laughs) for that long and I would have like have to pack all these supplies with me or snacks or little things to just be able to make it through that time right yeah so being bored if that's something that you relate to definitely is something and then I also in my mind connect that to the Enneagram 7 I was Googling. I got down a rabbit hole of Enneagram 7 is like motivated (laughs) by a fear of being like bored and trapped in their like life And I just drew a bunch of parallels there. But totally. In terms of, you mentioned the stimulant and medications, effective treatments for ADHD. And in what way are they helpful? Yeah, they're, I mean, they're great tools that we can use for anyone, but especially if you feel like you're implementing some of these strategies and you're kind of working through this stuff as best you can and you're still struggling. Hmm. So, really, what they do is, They help with your ability to kind of calm your mind, to focus. And there are different options available. So like there are the stimulants and then the non-stimulants. And that's a conversation to have with your doctor about what the different risks and benefits of each of those are. But, you know, they're going to help with the immediate symptoms of problems with focus, problems with attention and concentration, decreasing impulsivity, making it feel like you don't have to get up and run around all the time. Mm. But I, I do tell my patients that what it doesn't help with is it doesn't help with some of the negative self-talk that we've developed over the years because of our symptoms. Mm-hmm. So Mm -hmm. you may still be very tempted to procrastinate on something because you don't want to be bored or because you know it's going to require a lot of thinking. Even if it's easier to actually do it because of your stimulant, you've gotten used to avoiding those kind of tasks. So really what the medications can do is they can help provide an environment where you can learn how to engage with some of those things that maybe you've avoided or you've developed workarounds for. 
it's not a magic pill that like fixes all your problems, but it is potentially another effective tool in your toolbox. And mm-hmm. I always tell my patients too, like if you try it and it doesn't work out or you don't like it, you know, we already know you can survive the way things are now. So we can go back to that. Right. It's not a written in stone commitment to forever beyond this medication. It's exactly. a, it's a trial, like an experiment that we can do mm-hmm. with something in our toolbox. And I think much like with anxiety or depression or any other medication that I talk to the moms I work with, it doesn't do the coping for us, mm-hmm. right? It can help to remove some of the barriers or some of the resistance exactly. to applying the skills, but it doesn't do the skills for us. Exactly. It doesn't do the coping, yeah. right? And so if you're doing all the skills, this is often sort of a piece with clients that I work with. If you're implementing all the skills and still finding little success, then it's really helpful because like you said, it it can really remove some of that resistance or bring some of that clarity or motivation or whatever the case is if it's depression Mm -hmm. or anxiety, but it doesn't cope for us. Yeah. Right. And I'm sure you also find those people who their symptoms maybe are so severe that they can't even start down the path of like coping. And in those cases, it can be helpful to like start that process to where, okay, oh, now my mind is calm enough so that I can actually sit down and try to put some of these coping skills into practice. So I don't mean to imply that you have to have like exhausted all of your other options first for medications Mm. to even be on the table. Sometimes Mm -hmm. they can help you get to the point where actually engaging in some of those strategies that are going to be helpful for your general day-to-day life where Mm -hmm. that's even possible. Whereas for some people... You know, same with anxiety and depression. There are some people that are are so profoundly depressed that they can't do therapy at the moment, you know? Yes. And in those people, that can be a little bit more helpful. Yeah, that's very valid. And that was where I found myself three months postpartum and like didn't even want to shower, you know, like could not, could not function. My husband like booked an appointment with my doctor and that was the start of something really healing from there on out. But it it Mm -hmm. took that initial step. So Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. For joining us. Where are you hanging out online? Where can people find you? What are you up to? All the social media things and you know, whatever the next hyperfixation is going to be, (laughs) like there as well. Um, But most of my links to everything is on my website, drmelissashepherd.com. I have a couple posts on ADHD specifically. And, you know, if you're interested in some of the resources that I know of for ADHD, you can find them linked there, some books and and that sort of thing. So that's probably the biggest thing. Yeah. And we'll link all of that Mm -hmm. in the show notes so that people can find you if they haven't already seen you in their For You page and things. (laughs) And again, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate this conversation today. And I know that it'll, you know, hit home with a lot of moms who feel like they're struggling and failing and hopefully inspire some self-compassion to see themselves through a different lens. So thank you. Exactly. There is help out there and you're doing a much better job than you realize. I can't even begin to tell you how happy and honored I am that you choose to spend your time here with me each week. If you're looking for the resources and things that were discussed in today's show, you can find them in the show notes, which is linked in the episode description, or you can head directly to happyasamother.co slash podcast and find all of the show notes there. 
If you're looking for support and connection with other moms, you can head over to facebook.com slash groups slash happy as a mother and join our Facebook community. This community is filled with women just like you and I who want to support and uplift one another through our postpartum journey. And until next episode, mama, I want you to know, keep showing up. You're doing a great job.